Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, an independent Formula One podcast that aims to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute and a wide array of F1 subject matter experts that cover every aspect of F1 from racing to politics, technology, news and business. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. I'm your host, Richard Spanners-Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two-Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Uh, it's going great, my friend. How about yourself? I'm very excited about today's show. Well, first of all, I'm feeling a little bit bitter. It turns out the US Grand Prix was our 100th missed apex together. No card from you, no flowers, nothing. And you expected? Just a little acknowledgement. That's all I wanted. Well, congratulations. So it turns out that, yes, indeed, Missed Apex Podcast is 100 episodes old. Uh, we didn't mention it because we didn't realize, we forgot. But in this time, we have had 372,404 downloads as of this morning. You know, that's that's not bad. This year's been ace. Yeah, well, it, it, we've seen a tremendous pickup in our traffic. And uh, likewise, just in, the, I feel like the quality of the content we've been able to offer just has been fantastic. So, Matt, I reckon we should add up the amount of podcasts you and I have done together. What do you reckon it is in total in the last four years? In the last four years? I don't know, 10,000, it seems like. I think it's probably 300. I'll probably spend more time talking to you than those horrible, tiny humans in my house. (laughs) Good plan, I have to say. So, Matt and I, for those of you who don't know, have happily podcasted together for about four years, and we've had loads of shows where only a few hundred people have tuned in. So, to suddenly find myself in a position where every time I press record in my shed, 6,000 people will download and listen to that is is quite incredible. 
Think about that, Matt. 6,000 people in a room listening to me yelling at Ken about a lion. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to hear certain things uh, wrangling said about people and circuses and whatnot. So yeah, don't press your luck. Okay, yes. Yeah, so sometimes it feels like I'm wasting your time, listeners, but not today. Today, I bring you the former CEO of Lotus F1 Racing. That's right. In our shed right now, we are joined by Matthew Carter. How's it going, Matthew? Very good. Very good. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us, because obviously we speak to Joe and he's one step closer than we are in the paddock trying to get access to what's going on. But you were right there in the heart of the sport. So you must forgive us if we just fanboy flake out. I I understand. I was trying to avoid Joe most of the time. (laughs) Is he as scary in real life as he is on the podcast? Because every time I say something, he gives me a look of stupid boy. I think there's two types of journalists in the paddock. There's the ones that go for the easy questions and the ones that try and befriend you. And then there's the ones that ask you the tricky, the tricky, complicated questions, the ones that they know uh, you probably can't answer because you're, uh, you're, you're with, you're, you have to take a step back. Your sponsors need to understand exactly where the team are going. The team needs to understand where it's going. And Joe always seemed to have some inside track on a story. So. He's, a, he's an interesting guy, but yeah, I certainly tried to avoid him as much as I could. So when I asked the listeners, has anybody got any questions for Matthew Carter of Lotus F1 Racing, Joe Saywood popped up and said, yes, <laughs> I've got one for Matthew Carter. Ask him, did you ever lie to Joe Saywood? I would never have lied to Joe Saywood. I would have been economical with the truth. Uh, that's what Joe does with me as well. That's what Joe well, does with so- me. As, as I say, you have to be, you have to be. I mean, it's a, as you know, F1's a big business and there's sponsors that put lots of money in and there's 600 people back in a factory in the UK. So uh, you have to be a little bit cautious with, with what you tell people. Of course you do. Now, the CEO is really the big boss. He is the one that's looking after the interests of the owners or the shareholders. Uh, it's kind of like the Ron Dennis to Eric Boulier, that kind of dynamic recently yes. w- was, was you to Gerard Lopez. Uh, no, 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 no. So Gerard was the owner of the team. So Gerard ah, right. was actually Sorry, the, yes. he was, he actually owned the team. So I was, I worked for Gerard. Um, so Gerard, I think Gerard's name was down as team principal, but that was kind of That's a fallback position yeah. after Eric left. All right. So look, there's no one path to becoming an F1 boss. So I have to ask, how did you land at that role? Because that did not come up on my career's day. <laughs> So I worked for a uh, venture capitalist, so the company that Gerard owned. Uh, they were a venture capitalist business uh, based in Luxembourg, and they bought and sold a number of different businesses. Gerard had uh, a keen interest in motor racing, and back in 2009, he took over the what was then the Renault Formula One racing team. Uh, he took the team over. Uh, they ran for three or four years, and in 2013, he asked me to go in and to try and evaluate what was going on with the business, why the business wasn't as successful as he thought it should be from a business point of view. Uh, from a racing point of view, they were fairly successful back in the previous era of engines. Um, but from a business point of view, they were struggling. So I went in to basically to analyze the business for him. And then he asked me to take over as CEO. So forgive uh, me if I'm wrong with a little bit of my history here. It, it, it took over from Renault and then became Renault. He, yes, he he bought he bought the team from Renault following the uh, the problems that they encountered in uh, Singapore back in two thousand and nine when they had the crash. We remember. Yes, 
Right. And, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle about all the naming and stuff like that. Yes. So that was that, that was prior to my that was prior to my time, to be fair. Um, so as, as I say, I, I arrived there the back end of 2013 after the end of the season. Uh, so I ran the team. So I, I came in as CEO on the proviso that Eric Boulier would be the team principal. So Eric Boulier would understand the racing side of the business and I would look after the business side of the business. Um, Eric, then <laughs> two weeks into my tenure, came into my office and told me that he was leaving because he'd been offered his dream job at McLaren. So Eric left and went to join McLaren, uh, leaving me sitting basically with no racing director, if you like, or team principal. Uh, so I went to my boss, Gerard, and said, uh, we need to replace Eric. And he said, we don't have the money to do it. So you're going to have to do that job. Oh, my gosh. We hear so, about that happening in football all the time. And then you end up with yeah. basically a boardroom member sat with a scarf on on the bench. Is that how you yeah. felt when you sort of climbed into your Lotus pit wall colours? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. So we had the we had the preseason testing, which uh, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but I don't know if you remember 2014. Obviously, with the regulation changes, um, there was the the Renault engine, um, which was, I think it's fair to say, it was a fairly long way behind the Mercedes um, and the Ferrari at the time. Um, so t- testing in 2014, we had struggled to get the car put together in time. We arrived at testing late, and the car broke repeatedly both or well, the Renault engine broke repeatedly both in the Red Bull in our car and in the catering as well yeah you could um, see so Sebastian very, Vettel giving up on that season in testing exactly so we got very very little testing done um, and then we went to the first race in Melbourne um, and bearing in mind the team were arguably in the 2013 season we were the second fastest team on the grid Lotus uh, with Kimi and Roman. Uh, so we went to my first race, which was Australia 2014, and we qualified 21st and 22nd. I think that's, is that a plane going over your head? Is, are you in a flight path there? But yes, of course, because in 2013, uh, it was a very competitive package. There was a win in Abu Dhabi and another one as well, I think. Uh, so then suddenly you enter the hybrid era. Did you know going into the start of that season, though, that it was going to be a struggle? Um, yes, I think everyone, uh, everyone, I think... The team knew probably mid 2013 or maybe even earlier that the, that the Renault engine in the hybrid era wasn't going to be as competitive. Um, I don't think anyone realized how uncompetitive and how unreliable it was as well. It was very unreliable. Um, so we went into it not expecting an amazing season, but I don't think we were expecting to be 21st and 22nd in that first qualification. Was the whole team like looking at you like, who's this new kid on the pit wall? Why are we last? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think, well, I think everyone, to be fair, the team is a very, and I'll say this repeatedly the more times that we talk. I mean, the, the, the team is a great team. Enstone, the, the, the people that work there, they've been involved in racing for uh, many, many years and they all understand racing inside out. Um, and I think they were all looking at themselves, at each other, at the car, at uh, numerous things, but all trying and working flat out to, to turn things around. Right. So I could see a situation like that going one of two ways, one of which is that everybody who has knowledge more than you is just like, oh, I can't believe this. Or the opposite is that they're like, OK, well, we're really going to have to step up and assume more responsibility till you got up to speed. Uh, which one of those do you think? We, how did that really play out in real life? Definitely the latter. Definitely the latter. They 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 stepped up. The whole team stepped up. Um, to be fair, I think. Um, so I effectively, I replaced the CEO before. The CEO before 
probably would never have been seen on the pit wall or particularly at the races because he was back at Enstone running the business. So the business side of it, I needed no help with. The, the racing side, I needed help with. Um, so it was effectively Alan Permain, who was the sporting director. He stepped up and he took, as far as I'm aware, because I wasn't there in 2013, he took much more responsibility in terms of running the race team at the track. Right. And now, just as a side note, as CEO, were you expecting to just basically run the business or were you going to be also actively out in search of sponsors? I mean, which of that is really more the norm in the paddock? <clears throat> well, that kind of is the business. So, I mean, I... <laughs> I tend to break things down and make them very, very simple. So a Formula One team basically has two forms of income. So we have the money that we get from Bernie, from the for the TV rights and where you finish in the championship, and then you have your sponsorship, and that's it. So most businesses have multiple forms of revenue, multiple forms of income. An F1 team has two. It's literally sponsors and the TV, TV revenue strokes prize money, um, and that's it. So from a business point of view, that was – sponsorship comes hand in hand with being a CEO. It's it's the, the key part to making the team work. So are you able to tell us simple folk why this successful team suddenly looked like it just wasn't developing or that it didn't have a budget anymore? Where did the wheels come off that wagon? Uh, well, quite simply, we didn't have the budget anymore. So the, the reason that I stepped in there was because uh, this is all public that in 2013, the team lost £64 million. And they're, they're public figures. Um, so we lost £64 million in 2013, um, which was the year that they were pushing flat out to try and to try and get on par with... Well, I mean, they were second in the championship for a long period of time. So they were pushing with the big boys. Um, and it cost them. And then 2014, 15, um, and 16, they, the budget was just not there. So it was a case of uh, day five or six that I was in the job, I had to lay off a hundred people. Um, we had to make huge, but huge budget cuts to try and make the team remain on the grid, basically. So it's really interesting for us watching the smaller teams struggle and trying to figure out why, because we believe people when they say money makes an F1 team faster, but where is it that the rich teams really have an advantage? Is it, is it mostly in the factory with development or is it, you know, on race day as well? I mean, we saw Caterham forego tire blankets at one point to save a few quid yes i mean it's 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 everywhere and i'm not trying to dodge the question but it is everywhere it's uh it's back at the factories they have more people um mercedes-benz have somewhere in the region of 1500 people we had 500 at lotus um and those people are split into every department as well so if i had 10 people working on the front wing mercedes have probably got well i don't know but they've maybe got 30 or 40 people working on the front wing yeah, but you mentioned earlier that there are two basic streams of revenue for a Formula One team. But for a team that's a manufacturer like a Mercedes or a Ferrari, they really have a third, which is essentially research and themselves. development marketing budget from the from the from the top team that you you will never be able to match as an independent as an independent. Again, without getting too much into the politics, the top teams obviously get more money from Bernie. Uh, from what was Bernie from Liberty now, so they get more money from the from the stakeholder because a they finish higher. Um, they generally the TV revenues split equally, but the prize money they get more prize money, so they've got more money there. They tend to then so Red Bull, for example, will call themselves a sponsor, so it's still sponsorship money. So Red Bull pays a hundred million to Red Bull, let's say, to have Red Bull on the side of the car. I hope they get value for money from themselves. 
Exactly. <laughs> and Mercedes, Mercedes the same with Petronas, Ferrari, obviously the same. Um, and then there's all the little side deals and extra deals that the big teams do that uh, sponsors naturally go towards a big team. They want to be on the car that's at the front. Go on, Matt. You're going to keep drilling into politics and money. This is your last one. Then I'm going into tittle-tattle and gossip. Okay, fine. Be that way if you will. But it, it is been made known that the prize money is paid the following season. Yes. So, so in a sense, you don't receive income for, say, 2014 until you get to 2015 and, yes. and vice versa. Is that something like, uh, for example, if I look at a team on the grid now like Force India, their development seems to wane. Sometimes their early season they show up. Sometimes it seems to come on later season. Do you think that's caused by when they're actually getting money back from Formula One? That's the prize money that's part of what they use to pay for their development? I don't know for sure, but I, all I can say is that that's probably is one of, one of the reasons. Um, one of the other reasons is because uh, the smaller teams only have so many resources and approximately halfway through the season, you're going to move your resources onto the next year's car. So Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, McLaren probably have two whole teams. They've got one currently working on 2018 and one currently working on 2017. At Lotus, we didn't. We had to split. So all of a sudden, the number of people that are developing the current year's car halves. So therefore, by natural process, the number of updates that you get or the, the number of ideas that come forward halves in itself. Yeah, this is so it. So the development, development sort of peels off towards the end of the year. I suppose with the bigger teams, if a development path goes wrong, you can kind of look over at the rest of the engineers and say, well, what have you guys got? Rather than, oh, well, we just don't have that development. There's so many areas that the big teams make a difference. I mean, I used to sit and watch Red Bull, specifically Red Bull, bring crates and crates and crates of parts in on a Friday morning, try them, they didn't work, throw them in the bin. And we couldn't do that. Front wings, a whole front wing, we couldn't do that. (laughs) If we were developing a new front wing, it would be... There's, there's obviously a cost to that front wing. So we had to make sure that it was going to work. So we would vigorously test it through CFD. We'd vigorously test it in the wind tunnel back at the factory, and then we'd take it to the circuit. And sometimes it would take three or four races before we perfected it and we take it to the circuit. Red Bull would, as far as I know, Red Bull would develop a front wing, and then they would put three or four different end plates on it and take three or four whole wings to, to the racetrack on Friday morning, try it. If it did work, no big deal. they just throw it in the bin. Okay, it would be criminal to get you on here in the changeover period uh, leading up to Renault in the era where Kimi Raikkonen uh, left, uh, in the era of Twitter becoming a thing for teams, to not ask you if you knew at the time of the story of Kimi Raikkonen leaving that team. Were you, were you just coming in as he was taking his injury leave? So I came in at the end of that season, so he'd already left. Um, but obviously I know the, the background of, of what led to that. Um, and again, I think it's fairly public. I mean, uh, Lotus were challenging Ferrari for second at the time. So I think at the time it was Red Bull were leading the championship, Lotus was second, then Ferrari and then Mercedes uh, or McLaren, maybe McLaren. Um, but basically they were second. Um, and Ferrari couldn't have that, didn't want that. They didn't, they didn't want that. They couldn't have that. And they'd spotted that Kimi was uh, as good as we knew he was going to be when he came back from his little uh, break in rallying. So when he came back and he raced for Lotus, they realized he was a good driver. So they decided that they wanted him in their team. And they approached him with three or four races to go. And um, he developed a back problem, which meant that he couldn't race for us anymore. 
and with Kimmy out of our car, the Roman was challenging him that season, but he was nowhere near as fast and he wasn't as consistent and he wasn't scoring the, the same level of points as Kimmy was. So therefore, by taking Kimmy out of our team, we yeah. were, they were reducing the number of points that we got. And, and that's exactly what happened. The team dropped from second to fourth. You say that's public knowledge. It's certainly not something I picked up on, that it was a nefarious attempt by Ferrari to secure a higher position. I don't, don't think I said those words, did I? Well, I've extrapolated from that, and uh, and I'm, I'm pretty handy on the edit, so uh, I'm just looking up some <laughs> other key that's words for you to say to smash back in there. But no, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating yeah. that the teams go to that level to, to get championships positions. It, it really is ruthless. I mean, all the teams are like that, as much as we would like to sit here and think about the purity of sporting competition. Of course, of course. And the teams, the teams push the boundaries. You know, they... The, so I sat on the strategy group uh, for tw- in, in, in 2014, and the conversations around that table relating to how far they could push the rules, or whether there whether there was a loophole in the in the rulebook that they could push to the limit, push to the limit, push to the limit, and they always do. And that's that's the nature of F1. Have you got uh, an example of the best loophole that your guys found while you were at Lotus? <clears throat> Not a loophole, but you'll remember 2014, our twin-pronged nose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. They were nearly the same length as well, weren't they? Well, that was the whole point. <laughs> so they were. the reason they weren't the same length was because the rule book said that the tip of the nose had to be a single structure, and it had to be uh, one single structure, and it had to be 150 millimeters away from the rest of the bodywork. So we effectively structured our nose so that the leading left-hand side was slightly ahead of the right-hand side. So that was therefore our nose, because the whole point of the rule was to make all the noses be at the middle. So we thought that we had absolutely (laughs) swum the channel. We thought that we had developed the greatest device that had ever been seen and that we were going to, why aren't all the other teams doing this? And obviously none of them were, and it didn't quite work the way that we thought it was going to. It wasn't your blown diffuser, but I don't think you need to feel too bad because isn't that the season that McLaren basically put a a sail on their rear wing as well? I think so, yes. Well, And that was also when they turned up with the fastest car until they realized they'd installed some stuff upside down and it was illegal and then they went back to being very very slow where they've been ever since um we're getting a question from the chat room that kind of fits into the topic so i'm going to ask it which is there has been a bit of a wait am i saying this properly british controversy is that it is that your pronunciation is perfect well done and by the way by the way overwhelmingly matt it is botas not botas you're being ridiculous I'm being ridiculously correct, as I often am. But that's not the point here. The point is, uh, what do you make of the current gardening leave controversy? Uh, so specifically, it, we're talking about the Renault, Renault's yes. acquisition from the FIA. Is this another example of uh, not quite a loophole and the team just being really clever? Or is this really sort of outside the boundaries of what you might expect? Is it no, cheating? I, I think I think it's the team being clever. My honest opinion. And if the FIA didn't have him on a long, I think it was the FIA, wasn't it? Or was it FOM where he worked? I think it was FIA. FIA. If the FIA didn't have him on a longer gardening leave contract, then they're the ones that have dropped the ball. And if nobody else saw it other than Renault, then honestly, I, I, I don't see it being a problem. How much? he will have seen when he was at the teams and how much that he will have seen at the teams that will be relevant by the time he gets to Renault. 
is, is up for discussion. I don't know. There's a great question in the chat room there from Evangelos. With your longer pronged nose, was it circuit dependent? Did you change it for clockwise and counterclockwise circuits? No, no. <laughs> so it didn't but it is, it is a good question. We did. We, we thought the same thing. So the basis behind that, if you want me to go into a little bit more detail, yeah, do it, so man. The, the whole, the whole reason the rule was written, and this is me not coming from a extended F1 background. So it'll be very simplified. So the reason that the rule was changed was because if you remember the step noses of the, of the previous years with the steps in them. Oh, they were great. The reason for that was because they were trying to get the front of the nose, the, the nose of the car to be as low as possible um, to prevent uh, side T-bone accidents that, that were considered to be very dangerous. So they kept trying to get the nose to come down and, the, and they kept saying the nose has to come down, but it has to be so low at a certain length away from the front. So they would go back and then they would put a step. So the step would effectively get the height back because they wanted height because they wanted to get as much and Matt probably knows more about this than me. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to get as much air to come under the nose to then hit the tea tray, as it's referred to at the bottom, so the front of the floor, to push the car down. Again, my very simplified version. So by splitting the nose, effectively, as we split the nose, we, we could have air coming ah. through the middle. So instead of it having to go round, it came up the middle. So in theory, it seemed to be a genius idea. It didn't quite work. So just no discernible time gain at all, or...? Just no. not quite, not not the blown diffuser you and, wanted. And honestly, when we arrived at the first testing and nobody else had it, there was a moment, <laughs> the moment when we thought, we this geniuses? is genius. And yeah. then I think we all sat, all the technical team sat down and thought, yeah, <laughs> if it was this good, maybe somebody else would have thought of it by now. But but. It's a bold effort because I think the people who appreciate F1 as an engineering sport as well as a driver sport, we want to see, you know, things like uh, Williams coming in with a double, a double rear wing or yep. six wheels on a... I've forgotten the name of Tyrrell. Uh, so that, that we kind of want to see you guys turning up with those with those innovations and see that engineering battle. Now, we were talking to Mark Priestley, uh, who was a mechanic at um, uh, McLaren, McLaren, now Sky Sports yeah. presenter. We're saying, why don't we see the engineers coming out and having chats with uh, the interviewers as well? Why aren't they treated like superstars too? And he said, it's because team bosses like you, Matthew, didn't trust them because they would then, you know, you'd not have control of the team message. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I'd, I'd go along with that. <laughs> it's a shame, not, though, isn't um, it? Uh, by their very nature, they're probably not the most uh, well, gregarious of people. <laughs> Fair enough. Humble folk, the engineers probably wouldn't want to uh, wouldn't want to take all that credit anyway. But if you don't mind, uh, go on. I was going to say, and, and to be honest, I think they they I don't think would ever have been an, an issue with them saying too much um, or saying things that weren't on message. I mean, there is the. Uh, What's the other press conference? Not the there's a team principals press conference, and then there's sometimes the technical right. directors team press conference, which is attended by very very few people, but is basically that that role. It's the the James Allisons and the Paddy Lowe's, and the, don't forget their technical bosses, and they do speak out. They do they do come on the on the. It's just not as glamorous, is it? I mean, we have Matthew Summerfield here, who's the tech analyst over at um, motorsport.com, and he was just saying it's just not, it doesn't have that weight of popularity when you talk about the airflow over the back of the rear diffuser as yep. Lewis Hamilton on the catwalk or smashing into Vettel at some point. So, yeah, I can't understand it, but it's, that. Com- it's complicated as well. It's, it's really, really complicated. And that's why I try and simplify things with my 
you know, air going under the nose onto the tea tray yes. kind of talk, because that's the only way that I could even make sense of it when I was sitting in the technical meetings. Um, and it is super complicated, you know, to to understand why the wake from the front wheels affects the rear wing is is complicated. So did you have a favorite game on your phone that you played when it simply got too complicated to follow? <laughs> I sat and paid attention uh, always, every minute of those meetings. <laughs> so you're basically, you're like me at work. I'm in a position where no one can see my screen. So as long as I stare meaningfully at it, every... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The body thinks I'm, I'm doing something. But I, I would like to roll back to, you know, the end of that, that era um, at 2013, just as you were coming in. Because did you witness, say, Heike Kovalainen jumping in to try and fill in for those last four Grand Prix? And, you know, because this season we've had a few fill-ins and substitutions and it's hard to tell. Did Paul de Resta do well? Is Sainz uh, okay in a, a new car having already been in F1, um, Hartley, Gasly, etc.? Yeah, it's really, really hard to judge, as, as you all know, to judge a driver. The only person you can gauge him against is his teammate in the same equipment. Um, and interesting, that's one of the problems that Jolien had this year. Uh, Julian Palmer yes. against Tolkenberg. And I, I think I, I may have heard on this podcast, um, they were saying that he very, very rarely had the same car. Um, right, yeah. And when Julian came to Montreal, I, I saw him, I went for dinner with him and he said the same thing. He said, you know, the updates go onto Hulkenberg's car beforehand. Um, if they've only got one new floor for the whole weekend, it goes onto to Nico's car, et cetera, et cetera. So even within the same team, it's difficult to judge if they're exactly, they've got the same equipment on the same given day um, to judge how, how fast a, a driver is against another driver. So, yes, at the end of 2013, when Kimi left, um, there were a number of candidates for the seat uh, and they ended up, we tried to take Nico Hulkenberg, um, bizarrely, um, but that didn't, it didn't come off. He was at Sauber at the time. Um, and they ended up with Heike Kovalainen. And Heike came in and 
with no relevant experience. I think he'd been in Caterham the year before. Yes. So I think he'd been he'd been out of the sport for a while, and he came in and he was apparently was quick, but he was inconsistent. He was um, there's not a lot of people talk about it, but F1 drivers are very very consistent. Um, even you know the, the drivers that I had so with Roman and Pastel, you could say to both of them, you know, we want you to sit in the 125s. And they would sit there and it'd be like 125 one, 125 two, 125 one, 125 two, two, Crash, 125. Yeah. And it would just be like repetitive. And apparently Heike Kovalainen was just, there'd be two or three seconds gap in his lap time. And nobody knew whether it was the car, whether it was the circuit, whether he'd had an off, whether he'd just lost concentration. It was difficult. So ultimately at the end of that season, Heike didn't score any points. Uh, I think Roman had a fairly good end of the season. I seem to remember he got a podium in Austin. Um, and then I think he had a failure, an engine failure in one of the last races. So the team didn't score the points they needed and they ended up fourth. Uh, James Funnel has just said in the chat room, wait, he's a listener? Now, you said to me a couple of weeks ago in a DM, you said, yeah, I've listened to your show. I listen to it while running and occasionally yell and scream at you for the stuff you get wrong. Forgive us. We're simple fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be fair. We've established that we're first part. but um. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we get that show out quickly after yeah. a race. Right's a different yeah. matter. What's so, the thing you've... Ye- oh, go on, Matt. Well, I was going to say, you're the same thing you're going to say. So so what's the wrong part? What are we getting wrong consistently? I, no, I did. I Hang on, I didn't say consistently. I said <laughs> that there's occasions when I'm shouting at the... So I don't, some of the technical stuff... Honestly, I can't remember the exact specifics. Some of the technical stuff, sometimes, that, that they talk about... Um, some of the uh, the business side of it, the size of the teams, or the pressures on the teams, or I, I don't, I can't remember the specifics. Those are those are few instances. Okay, so as a general rule, I don't put any pressure on myself to get anything right at all because I bring my subject matter experts. In. If those guys get something wrong, uh, yeah, then people can get excited. But it's it's lovely to know you never know who's listening to your podcast. A former Formula One team boss uh, of all people, um, but the one of the greatest things to come out of that Lotus era, but well, one of the greatest and most controversial was the social media side. And, and we've pushed half an hour. If we can steal a little bit more of your time, Matthew. Um, that that came in under your era, but it wasn't smooth sailing. Again, it came in. Uh, the the guy that was running the the Twitter um, account was there prior to me being there, and the Kimmy Rabbits incident was yes. prior to me being there. Um, I think one of the first things that they sent out when I was there was when Eric left, and they sent out a book of Fifty Shades of Grey to try and denote that he was going to McLaren. It was all going to be a bit dull and a bit boring. Um, <laughs> And then during the 2014 season, we had a Russian sponsor, uh, Yotaphone, and the guy that was running our Twitter account uh, made a bit of a faux pas with um, a message that he put out on our Twitter account, which related to Russia. Um, And we had to sit down and look quite hard at the way that our social media was run. Um, And I tried to sit down. So the guy that made that mistake left the team. Um, of, of, his own, on, of his own accord, Matthew, or escorted out, make, made uh, sure he went to the gate. <laughs> wasn't of his own accord, um, and um, so we then focused on the team that were left there, and brought in some other people to bolster it, and we focused on uh, trying not to be as controversial, but to just be very, very quick, very uh, witty and fun and light-hearted and. Um, and also, a big thing that I wanted them to do was to try and give people on social media a little bit more of the background of what was going on. 
Yeah, I mean, so, you can certainly see with that guy with the Russian tweet, as much as I would have, you know, had a little cheer and given that a retweet on a public account, to see that come on a team account and go, ooh, maybe he didn't have the full backing of the team when that came out. Yeah. You can understand how business decisions, you know, come into that. And, you know, more other rather than the subject matter itself, the tone and probably aggression of, of some of those It's tweets. difficult. You know, it's, I mean, and, you know, they've, they've moved on two years since I was or 18 months since I was there. Um, and I think social media's moved on in that time as well. But certainly at the time, some of the bigger teams were having to run their tweets via senior management back Ooh, in the factory before yeah. they were allowed to post them. So there's no way they could get anything relevant or uh, promptly out because they were constrained by legalities. Right. Well, the chat room has a lot of love or your uh, social media team, uh, whatever the case. But uh, there are some fairly big rules changes coming up. Yep. And I know we're running short of time. But before you leave, and maybe not now because it looks like Spanners has someplace else he wants to go, would you consider engaging on a little bit of just absolutely rank speculation about what you think would be best for the sport in terms of the engines? And how would you, if you were in charge, divide up the money compared to how it currently is? This has all come up in the chat room. It's not me, Spanners, I swear. Uh, I can probably do a super quick answer, to be fair. Um, in terms of engines, I, there's no way they, in my opinion, there's no way they can go away from the hybrid, en- the hybrid era. Um, the manufacturers are behind it. You know, I sat in strategy group meetings with Ferrari, Mercedes, Honda, Renault. Um, it has to be relevant to road cars. Um, so going back to screaming V8s and V10s is not going to happen. Um, that's that. So I think the engines are going to, rem- they'll remain some form of a hybrid engine. As to how they do it, I don't know. Um, in terms of the money, clearly it should be better. It should be, it should be equally split. Um, I said it vocally. I used to say it in team principal press conferences. I used to say it in the strategy group. It should be much more equally split. Um, it is in other sports. It's a legacy of Bernie's management style or Bernie's Bernie's way of keeping certain teams in the sport at certain times of the sport's history. Um, and, you, and it's difficult to go back and change that. Um, but I think there are ways that they could try and incentivize the smaller teams a little bit so that it doesn't become such a two, three, or hopefully four horse race. Uh, Sorry about that, Spanners. I had to collect my five American dollars from Sommerfeld for asking that question. There's hidden agendas all over the place. It's like trying to run a pirate ship on the high seas here rather than attempting to run a professionally sounding podcast. Uh, right. Uh, we are really grateful for your time, Matthew. And every, no every one of those subjects, you've given us quite a broad sort of brushstroke uh, of, of a look into Formula One. And I could see you sort of embarrassedly almost saying, we well, don't want me to go into that detail. Um, yes. We do want you okay. to go into that. I think every subject we've had today could fill a half hour chat. And if we could ever convince you to come back on Missed Apex and chat to yeah, us. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Oh, no man. Well, in that no case, problem. we'll think of like a fancy show title and everything. Something like um, Vampire Diaries, um, F1 CEO Diaries, Interview with a CEO, something like that. Something snazzy. Okay. Uh, just to end with, um, you've just been talking about the strategy group and things yep. like that. Um, we hear about this all the time. It's made up of representatives from each team. And it almost seems like they have, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it seems like they have too much power and with too much, too many different voices coming in, it kind of stifles anything really happening. So a few things, it's not even made up of representative of all the teams. It's made up of a representative of the top six teams. So ah. it's, it's actually, well, it's actually, it's not even that. It's the top five teams plus Williams, if Williams finish outside of the top five. 
Um, so it's oh, the top really? six teams effectively. Yeah. So it's the top six teams effectively. So it's one person from each of the top six teams. Then they've got one vote each. Bernie, okay, so it's not Bernie. Levity have six votes and the FIA have six votes. So you sit around a great big table in Geneva or wherever it may be. They pick all sorts of random places um, with Bernie and his team when I was doing it. Jean Todd with his team, the six uh, people representing the, the teams. So there's 18 votes and everything everything that is then brought up has to be voted and voted through. So the fact that you've got six teams that don't want the same uh, – again, this is my opinion, solely my opinion. This Go is not the opinion of anyone. the only one you have. But the, the fact that you have the fact that you have six teams that are pulling in different directions um, means it's very very hard to get anything even remotely controversial uh, through the strategy group. And the way they set it up, it, then a vote had to be made in the strategy group. It would then go to the general world council, which is the rest of the teams uh, and a few team team um, sorry uh, circuit owners and a few of the big sponsors, and then it had to be voted through there before it actually becomes a law in the sport. So it's very, very long-winded. It's very, very hard to get anything, as I say, anything even remotely controversial just gets kicked out at a very early stage. Well, chat room's asking, well, how did that quali debacle get through then when they were changing all the formats? But, but it's, it's very political, and it's like a lot of other things that are political. So certain things will be – it's easier to vote for certain things and not for certain things. The, uh, I wasn't on the strategy group when that was voted through. But it was clearly they decided there was a need to make qualifying more exciting. They will have come up with a number of different uh, ideas, and that's the one that got voted through. But it was a shambles. Matthew, thank you very much. I'm really heartened now that uh, that you're going to come back and join us again. Uh, so, you know, are you active at the moment on social media? Do people follow you anywhere? Have you got any exciting? Are you about to return with all the catering bits and start a new F1 team? No. Ah. <laughs> I briefly uh, we've not even got into it before but I briefly after I left Lotus I briefly went to Manor um, so I, uh, oh, I, mean, I was that's, there for, that's an ed- was there for a super short period of time like six weeks before I realised that that wasn't going to go very far um, <laughs> that's an episode in I, in, but in answer to your question uh, social media no since I was at Lotus I, I came off all that so I'm not on social media um, I'm living over in Montreal at the moment and I'm working on some projects inside and outside of Formula 1 Well, in that case, there's nothing left to say, but thank you very much for your time, Matthew Carter. Okay, thank you. Okay, play it cool, Spanners. Play it cool. Oh my God, oh my God, Matt. How good was that to speak to a former F1 boss? It was amazing. And, you know, we only had 30 minutes, but easily we could have uh, gone tenfold, I think. The thing is, I think that guy is... He's a natural communicator. So the fact that he's going to come on and speak to us a bit more from time to time, even in that kind of short, sharp burst, it, I think that is an incredible uh, thing for for us. And then we're the first listeners. Uh, and listeners tell us if you think that that's worthwhile. Because, I, I, you know, well, I'm sitting here. I was saying to him, every time he was saying, oh, I don't know if you want to go into that, me and Matt were just nodding our heads going, yes, no, of course we want to go into that. Yes, we want you to talk about all the things you're probably not really entirely supposed to. No, but for him, I'm saying the mundane day-to-day things for him, they think, why would anyone be interested in that? For us, they are the things that we are constantly sifting through the news, trying to just get under the surface. And for him, even if it's like no news, he knows for sure that it's no news. 
Yeah. Well, and, and again, it just, it just, I guess it depends on your perspective, but for us, any taste is, is worth everything. You know, and he's there. Oh yeah. I was on that strategy group. God, well, pff, do you know what I mean? Like, could you drop that more casually? That's like us, like just being on a movie podcast. And then I don't know, Ron Howard just sitting down going, you oh, know, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, when we were making ET. Yeah. I don't know. I remember seeing him on a plane to Los Angeles. He was doing some drawings for Rush at the time, or you know, maybe the time I met Harvey Keitel or got Daryl Hannah's. Well, never mind. I should probably not tell that story. Anyway, yeah, so absolutely fantastic. So there'll be value in doing that again. But Matt, uh, apart from the fact that we've just spoken to a former F1 boss, uh, there's a championship deciding race coming up in Mexico, and it's pretty interesting because. You say nothing's in the bag, and I've been trying to say that for the last few weeks. Oh, nothing's decided yet. But so much would have to go wrong for him to not wrap it up in Mexico. Yeah, I think, uh, what has he got to finish? Fifth, Fifth or sixth? Yeah. Fifth, and and then it's it's done like a dinner. The championship is over. But I, I think I said it in my, my last review. I mean, really, the issue for Ferrari is they need to win a race between now and the end of the year, or else it will look very bad for them. Because since they've come back from the break, They've just not been on top of it. And at first glance, you know, Mexico looks to be, again, a fairly good circuit for them. But two things I noticed, uh, one from Summers, uh, that the tire differential, which had been three pounds from front to rear, is only one and a half, although that could change. But equally important, if we think back to Total Wolf talking about what, where the car worked particularly well, They've laid new asphalt in Mexico, and this has generally worked to Mercedes' advantage. So I don't know. It it could be it could be a bit of a walk for them. We'll have to see. Well, I think anything that gives all the cars more grip and therefore removes the out and out advantage of having more downforce, if you like. If there's no grip, then the teams with, who can pile on the downforce are going to be the ones that are going to benefit. So for uh, Mexico with its high altitude, if there's no downforce to be had, then yes, the teams that can generate the most to overcome that will have an advantage. But then if you give back some grip with new tarmac, you know, maybe that brings Mercedes back into play. Yeah, well, I I think after Austin, you know, it seems like the development that Ferrari brought did not work as they anticipated. So, and with only a week in between, that's really going to be difficult for them. Add to it the asphalt and the tires being slightly more in Mercedes' favor. And and I think, you know, hopefully we'll see uh, Vettel on pace with Lewis and they'll have a proper race at the front, which, you know, we had in, in some of the places right behind. But, you so, know, Mexico is not as good for overtaking, though, is it really? It's not because they go through the stadium section and that spaces them all out nicely. So they go down the back straight with a big gap and then they can't attack into turn one. Uh, but Blackout19 is saying fresh, grippy tarmac helps with the balance of the cars and will favor Mercedes. Uh, Christian Lewis looking for most wins. Not sure he'll let anyone have a win if he can help it. A- absolutely. Um, Philip Allen, Ham-, Ham won't make that em- error again. I don't know what that is. Uh, but once Ham clinches the title, he'll let Vettel win like 2015 with Rosberg. There's loads of con- connotations for what's going to happen towards the end of uh, this season. For one thing, even if Lewis Hamilton does wrap it up, there's still an issue for me where people are going to say, well, Ferrari threw it away. But if if Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton smash the next three races 1-2, it's going to be quite hard for people to just put that down to 
um, those three races in a row where Ferrari struggled. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying I think for redemption, Ferrari really properly have to win one of these last races. Yes. I thought I yeah. thought Austin was a really good chance for them, but they 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 showed up and they just they have struggled after the break. Absolutely. Have have we heard uh, Mr. Hello is going to be Mr. Goodbye? Is that official? No. No, I've seen I've seen rumors. I've seen it written online in the Twitters that Mr. Hello has become Mr. Goodbye at the end of the season. You don't know what I'm talking about. No. Arriva Bene. You've been to Italy. Okay, great. That doesn't mean I've memorized their entire language. A little unfair of you to make a pun, a bilingual pun to a country I've been to once that I spent most of my time either eating pizza or avoiding scooters. This is the kind of meanness that makes me not want to do this. 101 episodes, perhaps the last. Oh, dear. I've done it now. I've upset the spinners. <laughs> so Ariba Bene means hello. It means good hello. Yes. All right. Good hello. And he's going to be leaving. But Sebastian Vettel says Ferrari was a mess before Ariba Bene turned up. Yeah, I think he was. it was more of a mess before Marchione turned up. And as we all know, uh, he's not one to suffer anything less than total success gladly. Oh, let's bring Dominicani back. At least they used to smile on that. Yeah, I like Dominicali. He's off doing some other thing for the FIA now. So I want to get back to some of these connotations, though, because let's look at it from a racing point of view this weekend, and let's put some importance on him wrapping it up as soon as possible. So let's say Mercedes turn up. They've got no grip. The Diva uh, turns up, and they, they can't get a balance going. Red Bull and Ferrari uh, are off in the distance. Or, for example, let's put it in a connotation where Lewis Hamilton starts at the back of the grid. So so scenario one is the Red Bulls and Ferraris go away and he just follows them home in fifth place. Now, in that scenario, even if Bottas got into fifth, you would imagine he would very quickly move aside. Absolutely no issue there. I think he knows the score. What's more interesting is, what if Mercedes turn up in the best car? Bottas is at the front ahead. Lewis Hamilton has a problem in practice that makes him start from the back and it ends up with Bottas first, the two Ferraris, the two Red Bulls and Lewis Hamilton in sixth, unable to catch the fifth place car. Does Bottas do something to clinch the title for Lewis this weekend? That's a very theoretical question. Yeah, but I love it. (laughs) I'd have to say no. I think Mercedes, the team would demand the race win. If with the driver in race winning position, even though the driver's championship is on the line, they have plenty of races left. And and I couldn't see him DNFing the last two races of the year. But you do bring up an interesting point about him starting from the back as one thing we didn't talk about was the altitude in Mexico will be putting extra strain on the turbochargers, which could be a problem for any of the team. But we know that they've been having some issues with the spark plugs and with the gearboxes and they are getting down to it in terms of race mileage on these engines a high altitude race with making the ice work even harder because the turbo can't put as much energy into the mguh could be putting more stress on those engines and their ferrari does have an advantage so if if you're going to see a dnf this might be the place you see it because his engine decides that it would rather you know just head over for a margarita, then finish the race. Wow. I wonder if what Matt said was interesting. I was reading the chat room comments and thinking about racing and stuff. I heard him talk about engines and turbos. Oh my God, he's still looking at me. He's expecting a response. What do I normally say? Uh, uh, 
Absolutely. Well, moving back though to what I was saying, uh, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is possible though that they could use Bottas to say, park it through the stadium section if Lewis Hamilton does need that help to get into fifth place I can see Bottas being the team player and I think he's desperate for a win yes some sort of win but I think helping Lewis snatch fifth place would count as a much of a, a win of being a Mercedes team guy than it than than him actually picking up a race victory because actually I think he is still in danger of losing out that seat next season. I don't think it's done and dusted. When you look at how far behind he's been on race pace, that's been the disturbing thing. Like how much pace has just been disappearing throughout the race. He's, he's, he's chunks and chunks behind lap after lap after lap. And it just doesn't look good. And you can tell with his body language, he doesn't know why. Yeah, no, he's, he is, he is, well, not to call him a Marcus Erickson, but he's very much at sea at the moment. And he has to be concerned not only with Alcon and Force India, but as we all know, with Verstappen extending his yeah. contract, there's a possibility, possibility that uh, Daniel Ricciardo might be headed towards Mercedes. I mean, if you're a Mercedes, it's 2019. Who do you choose? Have you stolen Funnel's comment from the chat room there? I think Ricciardo could genuinely take that seat between now and the end of the year. It is possible. It's not. A sh- he's got a contract, but so what? Yeah, well, no, uh, I didn't steal his comment. I didn't see it, but it's been out there. He, he, we are not the only people speculating that Ricciardo and Hamilton seem to get on fairly well. And as far as Ocon, man, he's doing a great job at Force India, and he's a Mercedes junior. The Mercedes team would seem to be the next logical step if he continues to perform. Cool, man. I think this has been a pretty good effort, considering we weren't planning to do a preview. I'm still buzzing over the fact that we took, spoke to Matthew Carter, former Formula One CEO. But I think I'm going to be sensible this evening, get myself some rest and get ready for the Mexican Grand Prix. Is it another late one? Uh, yeah, I oh, think so. Man. <laughs> Don't or even later, I'm not sure. Somebody suggested that we do all our late night shows, uh, or sorry, all our race reviews late night because they enjoyed the atmosphere on the US Grand Prix one as well. And it was a little bit surreal sitting in my back garden shed at 1am in the morning talking to people from the Rocky Mountains, New York and wherever Jake's from. Sorry, not Jake. Who was on? Who was on? It was Chris and Alex. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's in in, in Vortex, of course. Um, it, It is. I think one of the... It's been amazing to be able to work with people where the sun has already set and it's still shining in the sky here. It's amazing. No windows in the shed. Don't worry about me. I'm just sitting here in the dark producing Formula One content. It's all right. I want to thank you. But you could support us on Patreon, couldn't you, Matt? Uh, You could. And we would appreciate it. Every little bit goes a very long way towards making the show that much better. And look at who we're starting to attract. I think we have a thing going here. I think we have a thing. Yeah, I think we do as well. But please consider supporting us on Patreon. I won't bore you now and go into the details of what we're doing, but we are looking for an aggressive expansion over the winter. If you feel like chucking a few bucks per month at us on Patreon, why not go to www.mistapexpodcast.com dot com and click the supporters tab uh, until next time remember that wounds heal chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever this was Miss apex oh wait was it Miss apex are we going to give it a fancy title 
Oh, we should give it a fancy title. And we forgot conversation of the week. Comment of the week? I still want to think of a name. I was like, Barter with Carter. No, I can't think of one. I'll need inspiration from you guys as well. Okay, then, who won this week's? Comment of the week. Yeah, so that would be Evangelos Heteroclitus. Uh, didn't seem like many people were playing this particular day, but he wins with, quote, dream job at McLaren. Poor Eric. Comment of the week. Yeah, poor guy. He had to turn Ron speak into, well, lies, basically. Yes. Yes. Or, 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 uh, strategically distributed truth. Oh, there it is. Learning about F1. Let's get smarter with Carter. Thank you, James Funnel. Unbelievable. It was sitting there the entire time, right under my nose. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market